Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Julia, thanks for taking some time to have a chat with me on the show. We really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you, Owen. Thanks for having me. I thought maybe, uh, in just in doing my research, I thought maybe a, a good way to start would be uh, just to ask you, I know you have teenage daughters, how you try and explain to them what you do and how you go about teaching them about investing or money, or even if you've just tried to broach that subject at all, any of the kind of the wisdom that you can give myself and listeners would be very much appreciated. Sure. Okay. I do have teenage daughters. One is going into year 12 and the other one is in year nine. So I have talked to them about investing in the past. And they, they do, they do show a lot of interest and they certainly show a lot of interest in wanting to be independent, which I think, well, for anybody is important, but, you know, certainly for, for, for young girls is extremely important in my opinion. When I described what I did to them when they were very young, I said that I was a fund manager and of course they interpreted it as a fund manager, which, um, which I like to think is, you know, one and the same, but um, I guess they, they, they understand, say, if I take them shopping on the weekends and we go to, say, JB Hi-Fi or, you know, shopping at Woolies, they understand that, you know, those are components of listed companies and the money that we spend there goes into form, I guess, part of their bottom line. So they, they do understand the concept of, you know, corporates and the idea of profits. And my daughter that's in year 12, um, she's studying commerce business or economics business and uh, and law so she and they're the areas that she wants to go into so she has a keen interest on it so um i do i do try to broach with them you know the, the value of investing and also the value of being independent do you think that either of them will go into the field into investing or business like the corporate life generally speaking absolutely my oldest one that's exactly what she wants to do the youngest one um i think she'd like to be an investor but uh, i don't i don't think she'll follow that path it's always an interesting thing, right? Because a lot of, particularly teenagers, they're either, it's kind of binary, they're either into it or they're not. And um, if you can find some, a young person that's interested, they obviously have one of the secret ingredients of long-term investing and wealth creation, which is time. They've got all of that on their side. So having a mentor like you, I imagine, would be invaluable to, to them. I normally ask this question at the end, but I feel like this might be something that is interesting now is... If you had advice for them uh, and you would be willing to share it with us now, what would you say to them if you were in their position right now? The value of compound investing, which is just the, the point that you just raised, it's, you know, one of those miracles, compound investing, um, but also confidence, uh, which is it's hard to teach somebody, but I think that's probably one of the areas that I lacked starting. And, you know, I guess confidence in myself. It's not something you can teach. Yeah. No, but it, it is a fair thing, right? We particularly, I, I find with the younger analysts, they often think that there's so much that they don't know um, and they, they lack confidence because there's so much uncertainty. I think as you go on, the, the uncertainty is still there, but you just learn to manage it in a different way. And that's and just purely from a professional perspective. And this leads us actually nicely into my first, my first question to you um, on, on your career, which was, um, you started as an analyst in 1994, I believe. I did, yes. What was that like? Did you always know that you were going to become an analyst? Um, I guess it was complicated by the fact that prior to that, I finished my economics degree in at the end of 1990. So I came into the job market in the recession we had to have, which was, um, yeah, I mean, 
yeah, I mean, you had to be there because it was it was a really hard recession and it, it lasted for years and it was devastating to Australia. So in terms of seeking a job at that time after finishing an economics degree, the financial sector was laying people off. So there was no prospect of, of going into that field. There was accounting and auditing, which I had tried and didn't really enjoy. Um, so I actually went into working for the Attorney General's Department investigating organised crime. So that's how, I, that's, that's how I got into it. And I guess once the economy picked up, which was by late 1993, there were opportunities in finance again. So that was, that was my foot into the area. This is a, I didn't know this about your backstory. Normally I have a pretty good handle on um, the, the backstory of guests coming on the program. So you investigated organized crime. That was kind of your research. That's your first exposure to research out of school. Or yes, uni. that's right. Yes. Yeah, right. And so, okay, interesting uh, segue here, but uh, maybe it's a more of a digression, which is just, did any of those skills transfer to becoming an analyst? Absolutely. Now you got to remember this was pre-internet. So it was, uh, in terms of reconstructing accounts, it was bank statements, it was check stubs, it was transcripts of telephone intercepts and listening devices. It was uh, it was a lot more creative and a lot more, uh, you had to be a lot more resourceful. The other thing would be uh, probably just questioning and, and inter- interviewing techniques. Was there something about that like that made you want to leave that field? Or was it just the, you know, I've always wanted to be in finance and, and work in um, investment research rather than say organized crime. Was that just the, was the allure of that or was there something that kind of pushed you away from that, that industry? I think, you know, the allure of, of, of working in finance was always there. So I guess once circumstances changed and, and I mean, it was, it was slightly depressing work too. So, so it, it was nice to jump across, but it, it was, it was a massive culture difference. How would you describe the speaking of um, in investment markets how would you describe the culture um, when you moved across well I guess I went from working in a what was a fairly grotty building uh, in Kent Street behind bulletproof glass to uh, working in you know the best office building up on level 39 with my own office and a view of the water uh, view of the harbour so I went from one extreme to the other (laughs) yeah I left a whole lot of great people uh, and I, you know, I ended up working with a whole lot of great people, but I guess the, the surroundings were completely different. Can you describe to us then that kind of that formative stage in your, your analyst career, kind of the key moments that the people know now as being a portfolio manager and a very successful one at that. Um, can you describe some of the key roles that you've had over time and some of the lessons you've learned, I know that you invested through the GFC, for example. Um, any kind of stories or anecdotes that you can leave us with that helped you become who you are today? Well, I guess um, switching over into what was then called the listed property trust sector in 1994 was a sector that nobody wanted to be in. So there was an opportunity to go in, into that area. I guess at that point you had the bond rate that was starting at about 11% back then and it's it's fallen ever since. And, you know, I guess in the last two years it's continue to fall, although we have seen an uptick quite recently. I mean, I've seen a lot of different cycles. Like the, the worst one for real estate was the GFC, so 2007-2008. And one of the REIT companies was actually the canary in the coal mine for um, for Australia um, in its, I guess it's... Which REIT was that, sorry? That was Centro, Centro Property Group, um, oh, yep. which, yep. you know, effectively collapsed. And that was, one, they were over-levered, and two, they had lots of short-term debt that needed to be rolled against, an, you know, an asset class that 
was you know overvalued so um you know had a had a, a debt mismatch in terms of timing so into a falling asset market where nobody wanted to buy assets so that was i guess that was um that was kind of the the, the formative steps into the gfc for the sector and also for australia i mean it was just kind of like somebody ringing the bell the gfc was not kind to the REIT sector and a lot of retail investors unfortunately were burnt um, because the sector was over levered it had it invested in asset classes that it didn't understand it had invested offshore it had a complexity of financial structures to make it more appealing which just started to unravel which ended up by just being debt on debt so it, you know it wasn't kind to retail investors and um, you know a lot of retail investors have missed out ever since unfortunately so Interesting example in Centro. I'm sure many of our listeners would remember Centro. Could you see this coming in 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 the sense of you know those those shorter term debt profiles? Could you see them rolling off? And were you questioning what could happen? We held virtually none of that stock, which was a function of where we saw the asset class being overvalued. Um, but we were very mindful of the, the amount of leverage and leverage on leverage in a number of structures. And up until that point, it actually cost us a lot of performance because, you know, at that point in the cycle, just before it tipped over, you know, that was being rewarded by the market because it was able to generate returns. It's just that those returns weren't sustainable. Um, so it had cost us a lot of performance, but fortunately we stuck with it. And when the when unfortunately the tipping point happened, you know, our performance improved a lot because not only did we not own that, we, we didn't own a lot of the stocks that looked like that at the time. I spent time um, in a former life in a research role and we looked at listed property trusts and, and REITs and the like, and we found some interesting patterns in, or with regard to how much leverage they use in certain times or certain at, at certain stages of the cycle. Um, looking back on it now, you mentioned there was kind of like a tipping point. Did you kind of draw any rules of thumb or kind of, you know, big picture ideas about when you're in that that bull market in property, when it's important to be careful and how, like any of the, the telltale signs that you might be going too far. And what I mean, like, for example, as, as one example, we looked at the, the leverage and we found that many funds that had 30% gearing or less seemed to hold up okay. But those beyond that seemed to, you know, get washed out a little bit. So I, I, I don't know if you have anything off the top of your head that just generally speaking, you kind of use now as, as part of your framework. I guess since that, since that point in time, the REIT sector has delevered, but they've also looked at extending the leverage too, so the, the, the debt duration. So, you know, you're not, you're not caught short. And I guess um, what we saw with COVID is that the Fed stepped in uh, and bought uh, credit um, because they were really worried about companies that had to come to market to refinance, that had debt refinancing obligations. So um, we're very mindful, and we were mindful at the time of, of, of debt duration uh, and exposures. Uh, there was no absolute cap on leverage because it can work for you, provided that the underlying cash flow is sustainable uh, and that the asset value itself has, you know, there's barriers to entry or there's like long-term value attached to it. But it, yeah, it's all, it all depends on the circumstances. But for that, that one was... You know, that was that was obvious to us at the time. We'll get to more of your investment philosophy in just a moment. But one of the things that um, I, I wanted to ask you was basically, how do you spend your, your average Tuesday? One of our designers here talks about designing her ideal life and uh, an ideal Tuesdays. I don't know why it's a Tuesday, but I thought I'd ask you, what does an average Tuesday look like for Julia Forrest? Last two years aside, um, which, you know, it's been spent a lot at home. I try to start really early. I also live in the northern beaches of Sydney, which um, if you come in 
you know, after a certain time, the traffic is gridlocked. So I try and get in at around 6.30 in the morning. So I'm pretty efficient at uh, waking up and getting out of the house. So I can do it. I can do it in four or five minutes between wake up time and leaving the house. Wow. It's just pretty, yeah. Anyway, years of training. <laughs> um, I shower the night before I put my clothes out and basically get dressed and walk out of the, walk out the door. Um, uh, I guess it's, you know, checking my emails on the way in. Um, I still like physical papers to read, which, you know, I'm 52. I don't know whether that's an age thing. I like to be able to see all the stories, whereas I guess when you're online, you can click on things that sound interesting, whereas if you look at a newspaper, you see everything. It's just my own personal preference. Um, you know, then I, I, you know, I read broken notes. Um, we have a morning meeting. We've, we're really lucky. We've got a, you know, big equities um, team, and so everybody's got different skill sets. And we've got a good fixed income team. You know, you mentioned that you'd spoken to uh, Wimble Gore before. We've got a you know, great fixed income team as well. So we get together and we talk through ideas, talk through stock ideas, and then you know, basically come back to our desks, go through portfolios, you know, look the market opens, um, talk to brokers, talk to companies, talk to industry contacts. Um, it's just, you know, and, and it reiterates during the day. So um, that's, that's a typical Tuesday. It's interesting because when I speak to people involved in on the property side of the ledger, I find that so much of it is still, or not still, but is kind of based on your network and speaking extensively to who's in the industry and how, you know, that connection and what's their relationship to this deal that's going to happen. And I feel like that's a, a significant edge where say on the equity side, many investors, well, like when I say equities, I mean like, you know, industrials and that type of stuff, they tend to, we tend to be a bit more kind of, I guess, shallow and not as ingrained in exactly every deal and everything that's coming up. I noticed when I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, for example, that um, there's a circle of people that um, are in the sector and have been in the sector for a long time. So it's fascinating. Um, just coming back to you getting up early, I think getting up at 6.30 or getting into the office at 6.30 from the Northern Beaches is quite a stretch. So that makes one of us um, that can get to the office at 6.30. Um, how about now if we turn to your investment philosophy, Julia, and just talking generally, because we'll dive into the process in just a moment, but I guess just the investment philosophy, that 30,000 foot view, what are you looking for and kind of what are you, what are the beliefs that you or the team follow to construct a portfolio? Personally, it comes back to, I guess, your, as I said before, when I finished my economics degree in 1990, came out into the recession, I think it's, I mean, it scars you. Uh, seeing that, but it's made me very risk averse in my own personal investing, but also from a portfolio management perspective as well. So I guess we focus, we're very risk focused. My colleague and I, uh, we, we're, I guess we're looking at the downside risk and we treat our client's money like it's our own. We just don't want to lose it. You know, so we we tend to underperform in periods of euphoria when the market goes straight up. But we tend to outperform when the market either goes down, goes sideways, or goes up gradually. So uh, I think we put a framework around it that is is very risk focused. In terms of our investment philosophy, investing in in real estate is all about the asset itself, having a good site, having barriers to entry. It's all about your ability to attract and retain tenants. And you don't want a substitutable product. I mean, I guess one of the problems with retail real estate in the last 
five, seven years is really that there's been a substitute, which is, you know, virtual online, which is open-ended supply, which means that what used to be big barriers to entry of having a regional shopping centre, you know, there were no more regional shopping centres allowed to be built in Australia, you know, which provided, I guess, you know, this, this barrier um, and, you know, this 20 years of, of incredible returns disappeared because you had this open-ended supply. Um, so that's, that's I guess, we're, we're mindful of, of barriers to entry, um, substitutability, um, but good management, uh, good development ability, uh, and then for some asset classes, also the um, desire to sell. So for office property, which is tends to be quite cyclical, um, it's obviously good to buy and good to buy sites and develop them, but also selling at particular points in time is a discipline that should be rewarded as well. And for those listeners that don't know, you effectively straddled both of those sites. So you've got the retail component and the office component or the market there. If you're just describing, just to set the scene for our listeners, if you're describing basically what are the key differences between those two markets, and you mentioned supply in, in office there and being more cyclical, how do you kind of... Um, we've got, we'll get to your investment process. Maybe this is the way we can do it is to illustrate basically how you look at those two different sub-asset classes. So how do you look at office versus how you look at retail? And I guess that sets the scene for talking through your process from here. Um, well, I guess in terms of retail, particularly the big malls, you know, the big malls that your listeners would be familiar with, you know, the Westfields, we had been underweight that asset class for a long period of time premised on, I guess, substitutability, leakage of spending to the internet, which impacts retailers wanting to expand, which, you know, impacts um, pricing tension for rents and occupancy and rental growth. So not to mention, you know, asset values. Obviously, the cash flows drive the asset values. And if the cash flows are under pressure because you don't have the retailers wanting to commit or you don't have competition for space, so you don't have rental growth, it impacts the actual asset value itself. Uh, so we had been underweight that sector for quite a long period of time. Um, we had seen rental spreads becoming negative, which is basically, you know, you sign a five-year lease as a specialty uh, tenant, you get to the end of your five-year lease and the rent that you're paying, um, say you're paying $1,500 a square metre, um, maybe that drops down to $1,300 a square metre um, because the market has been under pressure because of this substitutability and this, I guess, this less competition for space. So, you know, that's put pressure on cash flows and pressure on values. We had been underweight that, you know, COVID reset that really in a big way. Um, so that the rents have been reset uh, downwards to more sustainable levels and all the power really vested with the tenant rather than the landlord. So you have this great reset, um, which has reset rents to much more affordable levels uh, and asset values have been reset too. Um, office is a funny asset class, the way it's performed in the last two years. It didn't perform anywhere near the way people expected you know, you had this big structural tailwind for office for so long and it turned into a structural headwind. You know, people wanted to be in the city for a long period of time. They wanted to be in the best space. And with COVID, obviously, you know, everybody had the ability and, and desire to work from home. So, you know, this what turned from a structural tailwind turned to a structural headwind. Obviously, you had a, a cyclical downturn just being economic activity generally. But the, the office asset values continue to hold. They, they continue to be very strong, despite the fact that, you know, your demand is probably under a bit of pressure. And so, you know, you've got developers are still keen to develop office assets, uh, even though you've got the vacancy rates gone from maybe three or four percent up to 10%, and rents have fallen maybe 
20-25% in net effective terms, um, but office values have stayed the same, which is not something we've seen before. Normally asset values follow where rents go, it just hasn't happened this time, there's just been a big disconnect. And I think that's partly a function of what, what's happened with bonds uh, and people just seeking physical assets where I guess they're probably trading at a discount to replacement cost. So just to just to clarify on that, so are you saying that basically because of where bonds are, the office spaces are more desirable, uh, the office properties are more desirable? Is that what you're saying? I suspect that's probably the case. You know, people are just wanting to invest in physical assets. Maybe they're allocating away from fixed income um, and uh, putting more and more money into to office and, and real assets. And is that pr- primarily because oftentimes they're like CPI plus or they're, they're protected in some way? They, are, they, they do have fixed increases. So annual escalators of maybe three, three and a half percent a year. Is In your mind, is that... Um... Is that a legitimate kind of, uh, I guess, trade-off, a, a tilt of a portfolio in, in respect of, you know, does it actually make sense if vacancy rates are so high, should those prices be resetting? Uh, I guess it depends on what they're allocating away from. If they're allocating away from bonds, which maybe are yielding, or yielding 1.5% or 1%, then maybe that makes an astute maybe it's fairly astute and you've got some uh, inflation protection. So it depends on what you're allocating away from, but just for us in, in a sense that um, you've probably got a cash flow that's probably gonna remain under pressure for the next few years. Um, we just, we've had a preference for other asset classes, um, whether it's um, more recently, malls, I guess, given that you've, you've seen a rental reset um, or industrial logistics assets, um, you know, childcare, uh, other asset classes have just seemed better value to us. One of the things that I guess there's two things here when we'll dig into both of them, but the first one is on the retail side of things, people are kind of skeptical, I guess, coming out of COVID if places like the local Westfield are still going to be as busy. I think I read in an interview or um, I think it was something you said, basically that it's the responsibility of the landlord. So Westfield to get foot traffic and it's the responsibility of the retailer to make money from to convert it. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, it is, right? Yeah, it um, is. If, and they sh- they they could both, I guess, win. They should both win. But I guess some people are skeptical, Julia, that we're we're going to return to malls in the same in the same capacity that we did prior to COVID. Whether that's because we're shopping more online, or you know, insert any reason. Are you seeing that over the medium term we are going to make that shift back? And I guess the the second question around that is what are some of the more innovative things that landlords and um, shopping centers for example are doing to get people back in sooner well we have seen a big so as the you know the economies have been opening up we have seen a big bounce back in spending Uh, so we saw it last time in august september october last year Um, so we saw this i guess you'd call it revenge spending people uh, had cash to spend they you know they hadn't spent money on holidays we do expect the same thing to happen this period of time the difference this time versus last last period is that asset prices have probably gone up 20 25 percent as well so they've got cash to spend and they're feeling wealthy Uh, they've also missed out on a couple of school holidays so they you know they do have money to spend Uh, in terms of it being sustainable um, I guess the landlords are really remixed centers to include more services that bring you back um, to the mall. You have seen, you've seen a rebound in traffic, not to the same extent as, as where it was in 2019, but people are actually spending more when they're there. They're staying shorter periods of time. Um, they're going less, but they're spending more. So the conversion rates are higher. 
So that's interesting. So and can I ask, how, how do you how do you get a gauge on that? How do you get a gauge on how much consumers are spending? Are you looking at official statistics or are you doing your own work, reading down your reports or where do you get that information from? Well, you can see it in in like CBA spending data, um, but you can, the, the, the more landlords also release it themselves. Just while we're on this topic of getting people physically back to locations, um, I think I read that during COVID, e-commerce or online spending um, effectively went from I think it was nine percent to twelve or or something like that, and then there's a there's a I don't know numbers right in front of me, but going up to some estimates suggest around twenty to twenty five percent. I also I think it was from your colleague, but I actually read something similar, which basically suggested that it just transfers the spending in a different way. So and and for property, it can transfer that to industrial assets rather than retail assets. But for retail specifically, do you see that as a, as a threat or a kind of an opportunity for property investors? Well, it's both. Uh, it, you just have to own the best assets. Um, I think during COVID, uh, I mean, you did see that big flight to online spending. The retailers have actually, you know, used that opportunity to close their bottom five to ten percent stores, which has actually made them more resilient. Um, they're not probably not going to open as many stores as they have in the past, so they, they're really going to open stores in the best centres. So I think you have to be choosy about which centres you're in. I don't think all centres will do well. I think there'll be some that probably you'll see parts of them closed down and maybe reconverted to other purposes, whether it's you know student accommodation or built to rent. Um, or health, not all of them will survive, but the ones that do survive, I think will will do reasonably well, particularly now that you've seen rents reset to more sustainable levels. It's interesting, right? Because I, I often, I speak to a lot of investors and, and um, I think the way it's all framed is very interesting insofar as the way we're seeing retail premises go. It's like you said, services, like people go there to drop their kids off. So they may as well do their shopping. Um, if, if there's a hotel, that well, they're going to be spending in that location. Like I know Chadston here in Victoria yeah. has something had something similar, right? Yeah. Um, but even even things like the movies and the cinemas, people have been predicting for a long time that they would there was the demise was Netflix and all this type of stuff. But I think we overlooked the fact that people go there not just for consumption but also for entertainment. Yes. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I was desperate to get out after whatever it was, 105 days in lockdown, um, and I can't wait for the new James Bond movie to start. So. I was just about to say the same thing. <laughs> And you can't watch that at home. (laughs) That's a shared experience. (laughs) It's true. true, Yes. I did try and watch, um, this is a huge digression from investing, but I did watch uh, the Black Widow movie from home and it just did come out at the cinemas as well. So it's almost like I have to go back and watch it again. But I I think for investors, right, that's actually something that we probably, many of us have overlooked insofar as people genuinely do want to get out and do want to go to these premises. So they're still going to be valuable. So once the reset happened, it was a time to rotate in. And I noticed because I, I did in, in doing some prep, I, I noticed that the A-REIT index is actually back to where it was basically pre-COVID. Was that, is that a surprise to you? It is remarkable. Um, when you think about what happened during COVID and the code of conduct, which was a national code of conduct, which basically said that uh, landlords had to help uh, tenants um, insofar as um, forbearing, you know, forbearance on rents, or deferrals. Um, they didn't do that with the banks. That was just a deferral. That was, you know, it's not like the bank said, look, you don't need to pay us interest for uh, for three or six months. And and by the way, we'll just forget about it. That was just, it was just deferred. But the, the actual landlords, they took that hit. Um, and, you know, it's, it was the only sector in the economy that really did. So for them to have bounced back is really quite remarkable. 
the other thing for that is, is that the value of real estate basically comes from the length of the leases. And there's typically leverage that is applied against the length of those leases because they're, you know, basically foreseeable, sustainable cash flows. And so when you sever the length of the lease by this legislation, um, you know, the whole sector, you know, the whole asset class could have come unwound um, because do you think about all the leverage that's up against it uh, and the sanctity of the lease, you know, being a legal contract uh, was severed, um, was just unthinkable. So the fact that um, the sector has gone back to where it was pre-COVID is really quite remarkable. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if we imagine if you're um, investing in an industrial company, you're doing discounted cash flow analysis or you're doing some cash flow modeling and all of a sudden it's down 20%. Um, that has a significant impact, not only on your the interim free cash flows, but also on the terminal value, right? Which is yes, that's basically right. the majority of the asset value. So that's a, that's a really interesting thing. I, um, sorry, Julie, I think I just missed something in the, in the notes here that I wanted to go back to, which was just around this, the factors that you look for when you, when you start researching one of these assets, because I know you've got proprietary kind of modeling and techniques that you use at Pendle, but um, the, the lease factors kind of brought me, brought me onto this. Um, can you just describe maybe in a general sense, some of the things that go into your own modeling and how you score and how you kind of um, quantitatively or qualitatively assess, you know, let's say like a REIT or a fund or, or something like that? Um, so in terms of our valuation, we have um, two parts to it. So the first part is the PE, which the, the earnings we forecast. So that's just a function of where we think um, rents will be, um, where interest costs will be based on capital management. Uh, and then the, the actual PE that we apply um, is determined by nine quality score factors. Um, so that determines what the PE is that we apply. And of those nine quality factors, five of them relate to management. Uh, so it's management's ability to, I guess, add value to, to those earnings, either to sustain it or to actually enhance it. Um, so that's the first part. The second part is a breakup valuation. So again, it's forecasting earnings uh, and then applying a, a multiple for those earnings. And that's, that's we use a cap rate, which is basically, I guess you could think about it as the inverse of, of a PE. Um, so it's just kind of it's just a, a percentage that we that we use to determine the value of the real estate. So we apply a cap rate based on where we see the cap rate for that particular asset class or that particular asset. Um, so our valuations are a combination of those two outcomes, and then we rank those relative to each other, and we try to own the ones that are compelling value and own less of, less of the ones that aren't. Yeah. So um, on the, in the A-rate uh, index here in Australia, there, of course, it's A-rate, there's about 35 securities, but depending on which fund we're talking about, you can um, invest outside of that a little bit as well. We can. That's yes, right. that's right. Yes. And we have in the past. Yes. And I guess the process probably wouldn't change whether it's listed or unlisted because you still have an estimate of earnings and quality and those types of things. Right? That's right. Yeah. 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 The, the other thing that I know a lot of our listeners would be keen for me to ask you about is Basically, so we've talked about retail. Now we talk about the office a bit more. The work from home movement has changed the way many businesses operate. I think it was you that said, or it came from the, the Lend-Lease. I think you were quoting Lend-Lease or something like this, where you said, that basically, employer, employers have to earn the commute of employees. And I'm hearing anecdotally that some people who are hiring in this market are basically having to offer 100% flexibility if the employee wants that. How does that, in your opinion, impact office prices? Like we've talked about it in terms of supply. Do you think that the, the level of supply that we have in major cities at the moment, for example, is too much? 
I think there's a lot of old stock which isn't fit for purpose anymore. Um, so when I was quoting Lendlease uh, about earning the commute, I guess you've got to have premises that are fit for purpose. So modern, uh, offer amenity, and then ESG credentials as well, which is extremely important. So um, I think there's probably too much supply of, of older stock. Obviously, the supply of newer stock will appeal to tenants and you will see tenants gravitate out of the old stock towards the new stock. But the absolute levels of vacancy will hang on and depress rents generally. That's interesting you brought up uh, ESG because we've had, is it neighbours ratings for quite some mm-hmm. time? That's right, yes. ESG is now, uh, I guess, a much bigger focus, not only of property investors and, and landlords, but also just generally every company you know, is almost being expected to report on um, emissions and those types of things and their impact on the environment. Are you seeing that kind of come down the pike now? Is that what you, you were referring to before from ESG? Absolutely. The, the tenants are saying, no, this has to be better. Yes, that's right. It's it's very te- uh, tenant demanded. Um, so tenants only want to go into buildings with good ESG credentials. And for, you know, obviously the E part uh, is, is the part that they're really focusing on. So they want them to be sustainable, whether they're, you know, they're um, run on renewable energy, they, you know, even the actual, you know, the building and the built form itself, you know, the amount of carbon that's gone into a new development, uh, whether it can be offset or, you know, whether it's used with recycled materials, they're, they're very mindful of it, particularly tenants that find it difficult to do much like their energy companies. You know, they definitely want to move into a building that's got good uh, environmental credentials. Do you find that in terms of the rents themselves that the corporates are willing to pay more for this? You know, do you think it's a value add? Uh, I think it's more, I, I don't know that they're prepared to pay more, but they're more willing to exclude buildings that don't have those credentials so it's it's I think if you're going to attract tenants and the tenant pool is broader um, then you know as a a landlord that's what you have to focus on because I think the ones that don't they're going to lose tenants and ultimately it'll be reflected in values because the tenant pool that you can choose from is getting more and more limited. This might be completely um, different uh, and and it probably shows that the the lack of my knowledge on the sector, but is it possible that these these premises can be converted to something else? So we've seen things like um, that we work at my PO advice back finally in the last week or so. Um, and then we have, you know, the potential to even convert those spaces into something else, like a retailer would say from putting more services in there. Do you have any examples of um, office spaces where, they've kind of been repurposed and that's been successful? It tends to be cyclical. So I was talking about Perth before and old office buildings. In the 90s, they converted a lot of them into hotels because there was a shortage of hotels. You know, they were, you know, these office buildings occupied good space, um, but there was no demand for office. So a lot of them got converted to hotels. For, uh, I mean, you have seen, you know, other conversions. So in the Sydney CBD, you saw seven or eight buildings come down um, for metro stations. Um, So you've seen, you know, supply taken out. Um, And then you have seen some office buildings converted for other uses, but it, it, it can be quite expensive and it depends on how old they are, you know, with ceiling heights, et cetera, where the cores are as well. So that there's, you know, there has to be sufficient natural light. Yeah, that's really interesting because I was actually talking to my partner about this the other day. We're thinking, you know, what's what's the useful life of one of these buildings that gets put up in, in a CBD? How long do they last and how do they how do they tell the tenants that uh, actually we're taking down the building? Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Uh, um, 
I've got kind of a couple of final questions here, and this more relates to, and I think it loops back into where we, where you talked about kind of being that risk averse kind of investor and your early experiences through the, through the recession in the early nineties, obviously with yields being, you know, on a downward trajectory for so long in some parts of the world, they're negative. And then more recently we've seen, we've seen an uptick in, in yields for investors who are thinking about, Oh, well, interest rates are could rise and, um, you know, the yields are expanding. I should be really careful of being around the REIT sector because, you know, the leverage and all those things that we kind of at a high level, we associate with property. Do you think that, is there anything there that if people are making that trade-off now, what are some of the things that they should be considering? And do you see things like an unwinding of negative negative rates or negative yields? Do you see that as a key risk for the sector? It's, it's a difficult question and it's a difficult issue for central banks at the moment. They've tried so long to generate inflation. You know, you've got into this situation where there's so much debt globally, whether it's held on private balance sheets, public balance sheets, particularly, it's grown particularly high in the last uh, year as governments have, have bailed out the private sector. Um, you know, there's three ways to get rid of it. There's, um, you can default, which is not preferable. You can repay it, which um, the Eurozone tried to do in 2012 to 2015, which was painful, and the UK tried that too. Um, or you can generate inflation and deflate that amount of debt away. And so central banks have been trying to generate inflation uh, for a very long period of time. They've failed at it for the last 20 years. Um, it seems to be getting a bit of traction at the moment. Who knows whether it's sustainable or not, whether it gets incorporated into wages so that it actually feeds into itself. It's difficult to say. Looks like that's happening in the US, but it's difficult to know how sustainable it is. Um, so they've been trying to generate inflation for a long period of time, um, but they haven't haven't been overly successful. And I'm, I'm, I don't know whether inflation will persist, um, but uh, you know, central banks have been trying to generate it, so they, they want to see it. So I think they're going to be reluctant to raise interest rates until they see it sustained. And uh, the, you know, I guess the way that we're seeing inflation at the moment and the type of inflation that you're seeing at the moment isn't the type of inflation that actually um, responds to interest rates because it's supply-based rather than demand management-led, which is what interest rates are for. Um, they're designed, I guess, you know, lifting interest rates to, to moderate aggregate demand, um, whereas this is all supply constraints. So what I'm trying to say is that I'm kind of doubtful that they're going to be able to lift rates much in the future. Uh, one, because of the absolute levels of debt, and two, whether inflation is actually going to be sustained. Mm. That's, yeah, that's fascinating. So um, I guess it's just how we, where we see it, it take its impact. So where that, where that inflation takes a hold would be, would be crucial to kind of the outlook. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I guess for the property sector in general, and this comes back to what we we're saying before about typically CPI linked, I guess then... It, it probably for many investors that are thinking about it, it's probably not as scary as many of them would imagine because there is some protection there. You said before that leases were basically one of the most, if not the most important things because they determine the valuations and how you can support that leverage. If, if you're thinking about, if you're, when you're looking at REITs, um, are you looking for long whales? Are you looking for, uh, anything in particular that protects against inflation, even if that risk was to eventually, I'm not saying that you, you do think that, but if you were concerned about that, are there some kind of tricks of the trade that our listeners could, could jump to? 
well, it's both. So we look at um, long leases for particular asset classes, you know, so that they have fixed increases. So, so for particular asset classes, maybe for, for office, um, for things like petrol stations, for childcare, you know, where you have some CPI linked bumps every year, so increases every year. Um, but for things like logistics, so industrial assets, Ironically, you're actually looking for shorter leases because rental growth is so strong. You want to be able to capture it by having a market review. Um, and there's also development upside um, if the actual industrial premises can be, you know, converted to a higher and better use uh, or even just to better industrial like distribution centre. So um, depending on the asset class, you might want short leases if there's a lot of rental growth at the moment. But if you've got an asset class where there's less uh, barriers to entry, you obviously want a long lease, um, which, which protects you from a lease expiry and potentially maybe lower market rental rates sometime in the future. So it, it depends on the asset class. Um, but real estate does provide some inflation hedge, um, particularly because a, a number of the leases are actually CPI linked. The other thing is you've got replacement costs. So I don't know about you, but if you've tried getting a, a, a construction worker or, you know, a, a, a tradie to come to your house to fix things, you know, those rates are only going up. And if you apply that to the construction of, say, an office building, you know, replacement costs are, are rising. And it's a function of the land value, but it's also a function of building materials and the cost of labor. So, you know, there is there is a um, an inflation hedge by investing in real estate. That's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that at the kind of the, the much, much larger level. I, I have been doing some work around here and I could, and everyone knows that listens to this that owns a property, how expensive it is. So that, that that's really interesting too there. Yeah, so I guess the, the final question I did have for you was just around um, one thing you would tell yourself about um, or tell your younger self about money, finance, life or business. What would it be? I think you may have answered that, but I think it's worth asking again. If there's one thing you would tell your younger self, what would you? What would it be? I'd tell my younger self. I'm not sure that I'd listen though. Um, I was always really good on um, saving money, so um, I was always right from right from the get go. Um, my first paycheck, really good at saving money, but I was never good at taking risks. Um, very risk averse. Um, my dad gave me some really good advice when I started in broking. Um, my dad uh, worked in hematology and he told me to invest in CSL, which the, my, the, my, the, broking, the broker that I worked for did the, um, did the IPO. Um, and I, you know, I didn't listen to him. I, I bought a house instead, which, you know, look, wasn't a bad thing to do in 1994, a house in Annandale, which, you know, is a nice suburb. But had I bought, had I listened to him, had I had more confidence, um, I would have made a lot more money. Anyway, so uh, ha- having more confidence and, and uh, investing for the long term as opposed to um, just trying to protect everything in the short term. Mm. Well, well, Julia, many of your accolades um, are speaking for themselves in, in recent times. Um, I know uh, you and the team have won quite a few awards um, in recent years. And um, for, those, for those listeners who are interested in hearing more about what you have to say and um, finding out more about the funds that you run, uh, where would they go to find that? Is that best on the website or? Yeah, if they go to the Panda website, they can see uh, all the investment options uh, and decide for themselves. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Julia, thanks for taking some time to join me on the program today. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Owen. Thank you for having me.